Kulaktsikat. This is Indigenous Words and Ideas. Why? And I'm your host, Arcia Tekun. And for this episode, as I mentioned in the last one, I wanted to talk about diaspora, or rather just introduce the, the term and the concept of what diaspora means, at least in what it means to me and how I began to think about it throughout my research, just to kind of share some of that out there and introduce that idea as as I enter into diaspora, I'm going to do a little bit of theorizing like I did with indigeneity and, and modernity. And what I mean by theorizing is you can think about theory as you do about philosophy, which is uh, ultimately just ideas, right? What ideas are you using to interpret the world? And what knowledge do we have embedded within those ideas to interpret and understand our world? And one of the quotes I wanted to share to start us off, it's from Theory as Liberatory Praxis uh, by Bell Hooks. And there's a quote in there that goes, quote, Theory is not inherently healing, liberatory, or revolutionary. It fulfills this function only when we ask that it do so and direct our theorizing towards this end, close quote. And so I like that because oftentimes philosophy has a tendency at least within the tradition within Western modernity, or that paradigm that I explained in the last episode, it has a tendency to be universalizing, where you make an assumption that it is universal, or that particular one is. And so I like that this quote challenges that in saying that, you know, ideas don't necessarily, ideas do what we want them to, all right, because they're coming from human beings, and human beings are located within particular cultures, societies, and within particular moments in time and in places. And so that is going to inform the ideas. And so what we want those ideas to do is what they're going to do. And so one of the things that I want to do is move towards a paradigm of healing and sustainability and you know conflict management and balance. Because I don't believe that there's never going to be conflict. But how do we improve the world we live in? How do we imagine a, a better world or as um, philosopher Christy Dotson once said to me she's a black feminist philosopher you know that black feminist philosophy she explained to me was theory that had the intent and purpose to imagine and create a world where no one is prey and I thought wow that's that's quite powerful and it really hit me and, and, and resonated with me. And so with that in mind, I'm going to talk about diaspora, but I'm going to talk about it in kind of a heavy way up front, because I, I feel like diaspora is a paradigm as well uh, that is one of a lot of trauma and pain. And towards the end of this, um, talk about some of the ways in which people find healing despite that. And transform that feeling and that paradigm for themselves, at least momentarily, to work towards something better and something different. And so to begin, just in looking at what is the word diaspora, it refers to a scattering or a spreading out, a physical distance, and it originated with the Jews and the scattering of Israel. This distance from physical, from a physical place, and it's tied to oppression and displacement. So the idea of diaspora is is a severing of an ancestral homeland. So you can see why this would apply to um, indigenous peoples. There was an interesting video that popped up um, in the past on Facebook, 
by Rabbi Yaakov Shapiro. He was responding to U.S. President's comment that declared that the capital of Israel was Jerusalem. And he critiques this notion. And he critiques it saying that it's a Zionist fiction and that it conflicts directly with the teachings of Judaism. And what he does is he explains that Jerusalem is a holy land, a holy place, a holy city, but not a political capital city within the context of Judaism. And so like identity, right, what are we talking about when we say, uh, when we're referring to Jews? And so for uh, Rabbi Shapiro, he's referring to it as a theology, as a religion, as a, a belief system within Judaism. But to be a Jew could also refer to an ethnicity, culture, and language. Um, it may also uh, refer to a national identity. And so there's all these different things that um, it could refer to, and those could collide or contradict or, or overlap. And what I found really interesting in what Rabbi Shapiro talked about was he, he references the idea of being scattered and not having a, a land, not having a place. What made them who they are was coming to be a people without a place, without a land. Therefore, being defined in this diaspora. And so that was really interesting for me to think about. And it actually reminded me a little bit of the film uh, Thor Ragnarok, if you've seen it. There's an interesting line in there as well that says, Asgard is not a place, it's a people. And this is in reference to the impending destruction of, of Asgard. And so it kind of reminded me of that a little bit. That's a fantastic film, by the way, that will need probably a whole deciphering for an episode of its own at some point in time. But in thinking about that, that's kind of what I felt Rabbi Shapiro was talking about, this idea of coming to be a people outside of the place that made you a people. And so this is a really interesting thing to think about. Looking at some of the academic literature during my research, there is a book called Pacific Diaspora, Island Peoples in the United States and Across the Pacific. It was published back in 2002, and this was edited by Paul Spickard, Joanne Rondilla, and Debbie Wright. And this has all kinds of different articles in there written by uh, various uh, different scholars, um, including people like Melania Nye and Vicente Diaz and George Canajele, Inoke and Lupe Funaki, and many more. And, but one of the things that they talk about in the introduction is thinking about identity, because this is one of the major things that is impacted, and this is, it does impact your, your well-being and your health, right? Is having a sense of belonging and identity that is um, uh, very much part of what it means to be human, as I, I talked about previously in, in the last episode. And in thinking about diaspora, they, they mentioned that a couple of different phenomenon uh, result. One is that when you end up being scattered or, or spread out, you oftentimes begin to develop a pan-identity, meaning your identity starts getting bigger and bigger and bigger because there's less and less of your specific cultural identity. Location and identity. So, for example, if you 
identified within a particular clan or village or tribe or people. But as soon as you end up in diaspora, you start going bigger and you may not have that specific identity as strong because there's less of that in, in many cases. And so uh, with the people that I worked with, for example, I'm, I'm saying Pacific or Pacifica or Ocean because it becomes to be a much bigger identity and those specific nuances often become harder to express and hold on. And especially can be the case in countries that um, have high pressures of assimilation, which is the other thing they talk about. Assimilation being a cultural belief that one must become like this new place. But who gets to decide that? And what is that is often tricky. So for those going into like, let's say, the US or Australia or, or uh, New Zealand, that's often going to be the dominant identity of settler occupation from predominantly descendants from across Europe. So the occupying power also ends up with this pan-identity, right, which is European. This is this broad group, right, rather than the individual specific nuances in that place. But in their movement, they also end up with this pan-identity. But the difference is diaspora is about being displaced and so being scattered rather than those who have power within a particular paradigm and reality and whose identity is being privileged in a particular place. So often assimilation is being pressured to become like those who have come to occupy rather than, let's say, the indigenous peoples. So you come to Aotearoa versus New Zealand, you're going to face different things. When you come into the airport, you might have see a couple of icons of Maori, but you're engaging really with the settler colonial nation state as you enter into that country. Same goes if you go into the U.S. You're not directly engaging with the uh, native nations of that place, but rather the settler colonial nation state that you engage with upon arrival. And so to give you an example of what I mean by that assimilation, who are you assimilating to? What are you assimilating to? Another component that often arises as well, according to this book, is transnationalism, meaning a multiple nationality um, reality where you may hold multiple citizenships and maybe movement between places. Of course, this will depend on how you came to come into a place where you left. If you're fleeing from a place, that's probably not going to be the case. But if you're uh, moving to a place because of different forces and it's still relatively safe for you to return to the homeland on periodically, you may enter into that transnationalism, which refers to movement and mobility, but also is privileging the idea of national identity, which differs to those other local specific nuances like tribe or sub-tribe, clan, or, or what have you. And so that's one of the things that results from uh, diaspora, let's say. Um, other diasporas, so that's, the, that's a little bit of the work that I do, but other diasporas include my, myself, right, and the Mayan diaspora. Um, in the case of Ishimuleo or Guatemala, civil war did not end until 1996. A lot of the biggest atrocities took place in the 80s when my parents left and when I ended up in the U.S. And so that's a very different kind of displacement, looking at physical violent displacement in my diaspora story. But if we go back further, 
um, as well, one of the earliest diasporas in the Americas is from the transatlantic slave trade and the enslavement of West Africans being stripped away from their homelands and violently moved and separated constantly from families, from their cultures, from their languages, in a sense being turned inside out, and, and uh, centuries of brutality. So that is a, another level of that physical diaspora um, and being physically violently re removed from a homeland. And so in each of these cases, they're, they're different, but they um, have some similarities in either the scattering or a displacement or being dislocated and finding yourself or your people or a new sense of yourself and a new sense of your people because of survival and necessity, which can take on all those different forms that I talked about previously. But one of the things that I began to question in my research was that a lot of the conversation, or at least a lot of the things I was reading about diaspora, focused on geographical movement, so geographical distance. And one of the, the things that I, you know, was really interested in was thinking about time and the concept of time. And so one of the things that I want to suggest, or one of the things that I argued in my research was that diaspora is also a a dislocation in time, being displaced and dislocated temporally, um, and that you do not exist within the paradigm of time of diaspora. Or if we think about the last episode, the paradigm of Western modernity, within that, indigenous peoples, for example, are dislocated in time. They are frozen in the past, or they are removed from history and erased from history. So this is why there's efforts in different places to uh, emphasize people's positions within history. That's a, it's a political move to say, hey, like we're here, we've always been here, um, and contesting the dominant narratives, the mainstream narratives that erase them or give just minimal kind of tokenized vignettes of them. Um, and if you want to think about previous episode on thinking about Star Wars, um, and I, I mentioned in there, you know, how many movies are there of King Arthur? How many movies are there, you know, of Robin Hood, to give you an example? Um, so there's all, it's not just school books and textbooks, that's huge, right? Because you spend so much time in schools, what history are they teaching? From whose perspective are they teaching it? Um, and in the same token, we have the popular culture, the popular history that we're also facing, it, you know, whether it's accurate or not, what we're being bombarded with. And so if you have multiple examples and perspectives of one particular story versus not knowing hardly anything, if anything at all, about all these other stories. And so that's what I mean by being dislocated in time and being displaced. One of the things that I wanted to do, though, is to give an example of, I mean, give this a little bit more of the heavier stuff, but what are the consequences or the feelings that, um, what, is it, what does it feel like to be in this whirlwind of displacement and not knowing when you belong or where you belong or who you are? And there's a few quotes that I wanted to share that I think help kind of give, express these ideas uh, better than I can. So here's a, a quote from a song uh, called Uncle Sam by Brother Ali, who is a white American who's also albino, who's also Muslim, 
and he, he has another song that talks about his identity that's really fascinating if you want to check it out. Um, but here's just a short clip from, from this particular song that I think explains the impact of displacement on both those who are being displaced and those who are doing the displacing, right? This has consequences across the board. So he says, quote, only two generations away from the world's most despicable slavery trade, pioneered so many ways to degrade a human being that it can't be changed to this day. Legacy so ingrained in the way that we think we don't need to wear chains to be slaves. Lord, that's a sinful display. The overseers even got raped along the way because the children can't escape from the pain and they're born with the pores and this hatred in their veins. Try and separate a man from his soul. You'll only strengthen him and lose your own. Close quote. That quite powerfully expresses some of the consequences that result from both sides of the uh, paradigm of diaspora, of, of dislocation, and those who are dislocating others and then those who are being dislocated um, in this process. Another quote is by Loki, who's a British Iraqi hip-hop artist based in the UK, and this is actually from a song called Children of Diaspora. And he says, quote, Now we're stuck here singing soul music from diaspora. Your hosts can't relate to your sense of dislocation, the type of pain that cannot be contained in a dissertation. Considered as a compliment if our beauty is fetishized, your history is power. That's the reason some are petrified. A man with amnesia trying to find his past. Don't you wonder what became of the children of diaspora, those that innovated in their ways in their vernacular? Close quote. Man, the line that really hits me is, you know, having amnesia and trying to find your past. And so that's what I mean by being dislocated in time, um, being removed out of history through this violent process. Another quote that I'd like to share is by John Trudell. And he, this is from his documentary, which I believe is on YouTube if you want to check it out. And he says, quote, I felt as though someone knocked me unconscious when I came into the world. It's been a lifetime trying to come to. I used to get this idea that I was in the wrong time in the wrong place. I used to see this camp on the plains amongst the trees by a river. It was a tribal camp, and I felt I was part of it. It's like these thoughts were memories. Every part was familiar, and I was a part of the whole thing. Close quote. And some of the consequences in the way that this plays out in kind of everyday life, at least in my observations with, within my research, and even just in my life, right? These are things that I'm observing myself do in the past and at moments still do, um, because although I'm trying to, I guess my goal in trying to liberate from diaspora is to collapse it, is to dissolve it, um, but I can only do it momentarily because the system that creates displacement or that maintains dislocation and displacement is still intact. And until that, those systems, those intertwined matrices of systems of power are dissolved and dismantled, you're going to have to keep dealing with the reality of being dislocated and displaced um, as indigenous peoples and as, as peoples who have been dehistoricized, removed out of history and the dominant stories that are told. Um, and so one of the things that 
uh, results is what I like to call the what about us. And this is something that I've been thinking about as of late in regards to when you're dislocated and displaced, you're in a paradigm of pain and trauma, like those quotes and those songs that I shared earlier. So to be in diaspora means you've lost a lot of stuff. You've had a lot of things removed from you. Maybe your indigenous language, maybe your indigenous culture, maybe knowledge of your history, knowledge of who you are, your genealogy, depending on what kind of experience of diaspora you have. And what that does is it means if you're not in the history, if you're not in the dominant popular ideas, if you're not in mainstream visibility in a sensible, respectful, and real way, then you're not being heard. You do not have a place. You can't see yourself. And one of the things that can result from that is a what about us attitude. And this is something that I still at times do and I try to catch myself now. And what I mean is, for example, when I would hear issues brought up, for example, of other people's struggles, of other people's oppression, and at times it would be hard for me because I'd be like, what about us? Like, you know, because nobody was listening to me and I realized, wait a minute, like, that was because I was only thinking about my own pain and trauma. I couldn't see anybody else's. I don't know if you heard, have heard the saying that hurt people hurt other people and healed people can heal other people. And I think that's true, at least in my observation experience in life. And that's what I'm talking about here, is that when you're hurt, it's hard for you to help others heal. It's hard for you to see other people hurting because nobody's hearing you or seeing you. And this is one of the things that I constantly see in the reality in the diaspora paradigm because you are dislocated out of time. And by saying that, it then isn't just about physical geography. You might actually be in your homeland. But if the current ideology, the current system dislocates you, marginalizes you, oppresses your identity and your people, then you are made to seem as if you do not belong. And that is also part of what I observe in diaspora is to become foreigners in your own lands and foreigners in your own body, right? So that's something I'm going to talk about in a little bit here, but that's what I mean by what about us. And that's something that I observe and so for me, trying to move out of that, I re- once I was able to f- find some healing from diaspora, which just took, it took work and it took privilege. Like one of the things that I gained from going to university was time. Like I didn't always learn and university is a lot of bureaucracy and it's very frustrating at times, but taking out loans have crippled me for a long time, um, have nonetheless given me the privilege of time. It gave me time to think gave me time to read. It gave me time to study and research. And I spent a lot of time doing that on my own history, my own culture. And that allowed me to heal and to listen and to learn from other people. And then what I started to realize is, oh man, there's a lot of other diaspora people out there. And then I started thinking, man, diaspora is a paradigm. It is a particular reality. And those within it, are struggling with these same kind of things, even though it might be in different ways. And that's one of the things that got me to think about, you know, how do we move out of this what about us situation, which makes it hard for us to see each other. Or as Lana Lopesi puts it, how do we come to get to know each other again? And I, I 
felt like that was a really powerful question and provocation in talking to each other as peoples that are in diaspora contexts or suffering from that paradigm and reality who have been displaced or dislocated. So there's all kinds of other stuff as well. Um, you know, Chad Hamill talks about how colonization can make our identities very rigid. Um, there's other people who talk about, you know, how our future always puts us behind the dominant group. Um, Frantz Fanon, for example, says that if you're black, then the future is white. And so you're put in the back of that system. And so for me, I started thinking, how do we just move out of that system altogether or collapse that system altogether so that you're no longer behind? Um, I have another friend uh, who talked, Inoke Hafoka, who talked about how, you know, his family comes from, from Tonga. And he's like, man, coming to the U.S., you get into this grind of nine to five and you hope to retire one day. Where do people want to retire? The mainstream narrative is, oh, go to the beach, go to the tropics. And he's just like, isn't that where we already were? <laughs> and so he talks about that reality of being dislocated in time and then put in the very back of another person's paradigm or reality which doesn't benefit you so i started thinking how do we move out of that realm of time how do we collapse that system of time and move out of, into a different reality of time and space One of the things um, that was really powerful for me was thinking about how people transport land, right? Because if the primary identity for indigenous folks is land um, or place, right? Because if you're of the ocean, then it might be the sea or the ocean. Then what, how do you reconnect to that or maintain a connection? Maybe uh, you're landlocked if you're still in the islands or maybe you're overseas and far away from those lands. What do you, how do people transport land? And one of the things that I, that I observe within um, the gatherings that I participate in where people transport kava, which is an ancient elixir from across the Moana, it was a way to transport land and then people would consume the land and that was a way to reconnect and collapse space. And that distance was gone because now it was part of you. It was with you, and you were engaging with it directly again. When I think about the previous episode I talked about with uh, tamales and corn, that was another thing, too, that I thought about is how do you, you know, transporting those things and bringing them with you. And thinking about um, a good friend of mine, Silvia Solis, who wrote a, a very powerful um, article where she talks about, you know, diaspora as this, dismembering like it's something that fragments you it, it rips you apart and pulls you apart into pieces and so again thinking about healing and theorizing ways to heal she talks about invoking place as mothers as land and to quote return to the places we call home close quote which she refers to as our mothers and that made me think and i was like oh yeah our first land was our mother and thinking then further into the the realm that I work a lot in, which with Tongans, and the word fonua means land, but it also means placenta. And so the same word exists, so your first land in that language is your is your mother in the placenta. And then 
you come into this realm and then that is land also. And so for me, that began to push this further, right? And so then re returning back to the, the ideas that I presented at the beginning with the, the Jewish scattering and becoming a people without a place, um, and then I began to think about it further and saying how people become a people or remember place within themselves. And so instead of being dislocated in time or dislocated in space, you make those reconnections, whether that's through rituals such as um, the kava gatherings that I did research with or um, food that you bring with you, but then taking it further to where you realize and recognize that you don't need to transport that land because you are land, and therefore you are home within your body. But this is something that we have to realize with the privilege of time or through ritual or through remembering um, which we have access to when we reconnect to our, our knowledge, our history, our culture, our language, our genealogies, whatever we can, you know, piece together. And that's one of the things that, you know, I kind of want to end with is that when you are home, your body is home, when you've healed, you can become mobile and then you're no longer frozen in the past and in time because you can, ex you ex you can exist now. Now, again, the hard thing about this is that well, I'm talking about moments where, where this can occur, and part of this is realizing it. But until the system that continually makes it seem like we don't belong is dissolved or transformed, we're going to have to keep facing this. We're going to have to keep doing this. But hopefully in thinking about it in this way, if we can, as Bob Marley puts it, free our minds, then that can be a step, stepping stone towards transforming our world um, and collapsing the diaspora paradigm or reality that dislocates us. And this isn't to say that we you know, shouldn't be aware or mindful um, or of local peoples that have been in a place longer than we have come to be in a place. On the contrary, I think that that relationship is necessary for us to transform the reality that continually dislocates us. We have to begin wherever we're at, wherever you're local to, and come into relation to that place, not in the way that we're forced to through this paradigm, but collapse that and create a new paradigm where we relate to the local indigenous peoples and respect them as elders of that place and transform the material realities of not only them, but also other people who have been exploited and who have been oppressed for that reality to come to exist. This includes African Americans, this includes people of the so-called third worlds, um, and the resources and their labor also in contemporary times. So to wrap up the this episode on diaspora, I just wanted to run down again just briefly that the argument that I'm making is to add the element of time to how we think about diaspora and also to keep in mind its origins of, as an idea and how it indicates physical and geographical displacement, but also that what that process does and in demonstrating the resilience of how a place made a people in that in that people becoming a people without a place and you know drawing from my research with Gava and how Gava 
in contemporary settings, for example, as well as many other rituals, have the capacity to collapse the time and space of our dominant reality, even if just for a moment, which allows uh, the opportunity and the potential for healing from the fragmentation and feelings of displacement that can uh, occur within this paradigm that dislocates indigenous peoples. And in that moment of healing, one can become whole and then begin to glimpse into another possibility, into alternatives uh, beyond the paradigm that makes us feel as if we do not belong in this time or in, in a particular space in reclaiming our mobility as indigenous peoples, as human beings that have adapted and moved and migrated throughout the span of human history. And so to close up, I just wanted to share a story briefly um, that I heard back in 2015 when I first arrived in Aotearoa. Shout out to the Ta'ala family. Um, Shane got me into this kind of exclusive meeting uh, that I wasn't invited to, and I had the privilege of hearing Nainoa Thompson speak, um, the great uh, navigator that was crucial in revitalizing voyaging uh, knowledge, indigenous knowledge, uh, particularly in the eastern parts of the Moana, and was taught by Malpiailug, who was from Satwal in quote-unquote Micronesia one of several uh, master navigators in that region uh, who had maintained that, that knowledge. And he was sharing in this particular evening a story of kind of being questioned about his identity and coming from uh, the perspective of being Kanaka Hawaii, a, a native Hawaiian who, because of the, the violence and trauma of colonization and the U.S. annexation of Kingdom of Hawaii, throughout this history, you know, kind of being stripped of language, being stripped of culture, being stripped of knowledge. And he shared that someone had asked him, you know, about his genealogy, but in, in, in regards to, you know, what canoe was he from? Which one, which was the, what was the name of the canoe that arrived in Hawaii that he was linked to? And he didn't know. And he said that that really bothered him because of the way he was asked was kind of like questioning him as to how can you know who you are if you don't know your genealogy, which is an important thing in the Moana. But we have to take into consideration the diaspora paradigm uh, within Western modernity. He shared that he uh, was up all night just kind of upset about this and frustrated. And, you know, as dawn was approaching, he recalled, you know, I, I don't know, but I do know who my teacher is. And he's the best. I have the best teacher. He then shares that he can't change the last 150 years and the impacts and consequences of what he knew or didn't know, but that he could impact the next 150 years and guarantee that they would know who Ma was, who he was in the future. And he's absolutely right. Uh, it gave me goosebumps when he shared it because, you know, at the time for me, I was just beginning my. Uh, studies here and still had, was working through a lot of stuff just uh, personally and intellectually and just kind of trying to figure things out and um, kind of recalibrating my identity as well and to hear him say that just really empowered me 
to feel like that's what I could do as well as you know I, I know certain things I'm privileged and blessed to know certain elements of my indigenous culture and language and knowledge system and I've also privileged and I've had access to uh, learn more but I don't know everything there's heaps that I don't know and and then thinking about that element of, but I can teach my kids and my kids are starting up in a different era I can work with youth I can work um, as an educator which is part of what I do so that those next generations are going to be in better places and it reminded me a lot of my uh, one of my great educators and, and mentors Dolores Calderon who once shared with me in a in a class on indigenous epistemologies or the ways of knowing um, or the philosophy or study of knowledge uh, from indigenous perspectives that knowledge never dies we might forget it um, it might be stripped from us but the knowledge comes from somewhere and it's often in place and so it's still there that memory is in that valley in those mountains in those trees in that water and on and on and so we can continually reconnect and reproduce knowledge um, with what we have left and remembering what we have forgotten and remembering it anew within our current context because we can't go back but we can continue to endure the negative consequences of diaspora and continue to collapse it so we can heal from it and become whole uh, once again as human beings and so i'll leave it at that uh, for this episode thank you for listening so moving forward i'm going to try to uh, focus a little bit more on getting some uh, other folks on here uh, to share to to kind of broaden the perspectives further beyond just what i think and uh, so signing off for now and until the next time, Sibalak Maltyosh, many thanks.